Well, thank you, worship team, for helping us this morning to focus on God's majesty and truth. Uh, And for doing that every Lord's Day, we are grateful for you and for all of those who serve us by setting up and breaking down our equipment uh, on our furnishings so that we can gather together every Sunday, worshiping the Lord and building up one another as one body. I invite you to take his word this morning and turn to the Old Testament book of Hosea and its 14th chapter. I appreciated Brian's sermon last Sunday from Colossians 3, reminding us of our identity in Christ and our calling to be like him. This morning, I want us to look at what happens when we fail to be diligent in that pursuit, when rather than make progress in our Christian lives, we regress or slide back. As Brian also mentioned, for believers, this life is a war. A war not against men, but against ourselves, against the system of this world, and the devil. And every Christian faces numerous discouragements in striving to follow Christ. At times, our knees are shaky. Our hands hang down when we experience personal failure. When others let us down or when providence denies our desires, disappointment can lead to discouragement, which may end in doubt, fear, and even despair. We feel weak and tired emotionally and spiritually. We forget that we run a well-trodden course alongside other believers. We forget that we run with God's inexhaustible and his aid and support. Like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, we venture into Bypath Meadow because we prefer ease and comfort. We lose sight of Christ because of our sin or Satan's lies. We begin to lose our bearings, drifting out of the way. And we do the unthinkable. We turn away from the Lord. This turning away from Christ is often called backsliding, a drawing back from God, a drawing back from our commitment to follow Jesus, relapsing into unbelief. And there, a professing Christian finds himself on the ground, confused, discouraged maybe even embarrassed, perhaps even unsure whether to give up or to keep going. Joel Beakey defines backsliding this way, quote, backsliding is a season of increasing sin and decreasing obedience in those who profess to be Christians. He continues, not every sin is backsliding. Christians must sadly expect their lives to consist of a continual cycle of sinning and repenting of sin by faith in Christ crucified. In backsliding, however, this cycle of repentance is broken and spiritual ground is lost. Brockle, the Dutch reformer, described backsliding as a spiritual winter in one's life. 
the very opposite of growth. It's a departure from the Word and the ways of the Lord, a descent into the whirlpool of idolatry. Listen, I firmly believe in both the preservation of the saints by God and the perseverance of the saints before Him. But God's preservation does not guarantee that we will avoid sad falls. Times when we may shame the name of Christ. When we may wound our our own conscience. When we may grieve the spirit or hurt the church. Times of interruption in our fellowship with God. Times are a season that cause us to doubt our Christian assurance and cause us to fall under God's discipline. These things happen. It can happen in your life. It can happen in my life. Scripture and history alike bear it out. We have a strong inclination to lose touch with God. Just think about all that has transpired over the past year. With the coronavirus, the shutdowns, the economy, the teleworking, the the distance learning, the lawlessness, the election. My personal assessment is that Christians did not handle 2020 very well. God, God took his people through a test, a trial to humble us and to expose what was in our hearts. And based on my own experience, and based on conversations I've had with many of you, we didn't do so hot. For many believers, form and coldness in prayer replaces love and urgency. You become indifferent under the word. Spiritual disciplines all but vanish. Secret sins begin to multiply as you neglect to put them to death. Self begins to creep in more and more. Hypocrisy grows. Self-examination becomes less frequent. The spirit of the world begins to take hold of you, and you and the world begin to have more and more in common. God's good gifts become masters instead of servants. Money becomes your love. Politics become your basis for hope. Entertainment captures your mind. Friends and relationships become your heaven. Your love for others wanes. Self-sacrifice and service to others evaporates. Conflicts, troubles, and disputes multiply. People are either idolized or criticized, while God and his word are set aside. And the center of all the means of grace to Jesus Christ himself seems to depart. He was once the substance of your life, the source of your holiness and the mark towards which you always pressed. But now there is distance. You are no longer in touch with Christ in a vital way. in a way that expresses itself in your daily life or in a way that transforms all of your thinking and acting. 
Brothers and sisters, it is possible for the Lord and for his children to drift apart. For the unbeliever, he doesn't know God. He doesn't know what it means to be in touch with him. Only through Christ may he come to know God and have a living relationship. But what about the believer? What happens when a believer sins? Does he cease to be a believer? Am I in the hand of Christ one week and out of his hand the next week? Am I in Christ at one period of my life and out of Christ at another period? The Bible's answer is unequivocal. A thousand times no. Once in Christ, in Christ forever. When when the believer sins, the relationship with God is intact. But fellowship with God is impaired. The clouds have come between and God is still there. I have a feeling that if you had dislocated your arm yesterday, that you would not have come to church this morning and be sitting there with it still dislocated. You would have gone immediately to seek help so that that which was out of joint could be put back in place. The same is true in terms of loss of contact and intimacy with Jesus Christ. Sometimes that which is needed is very radical and very painful. And resisting that, we get further and further from what Christ desires for us. Well, this brings us to our text for this morning in Hosea chapter 14. In Hosea, what we are dealing with is the word of God to a people who have been unfaithful to him in their wandering and in their backsliding. Therefore, it has relevance first in its historical context to the people of God in that day to whom it was written. But it also has continuing and abiding relevance to those of us who are in Christ, but that may have found ourselves guilty of wandering, prone to wander. It's an experience that I personally know too well, which disappoints me, it shames me, and it chases me back into the arms of Christ. And those who would sit here this morning and say, I know no proneness to wonder, or I know nothing of a heart that has grown cold, feeling that to make such a statement brings, brings us up high on the list of God's people are perhaps deceiving ourselves. Because as you read your Bible... As you read Christian biographies and as you listen to other believers around you, what you may find is that those who walk closest to the Lord have been made painfully aware of the fact that the closer they come to the light, the more that they see the dross and the darkness in themselves and the desire of their hearts to stray from the path that God intends. And many times within our, within our hearts, we have become aware of a period of decline. Aware of the fact that within our spirits, there has been a drifting from God rather than a seeking after God. Even if everything is fine on the outside, 
few would ever know. But in our hearts, there is that wandering, and something in our minds is saying to us, why don't you just pack it up and go home? Why don't you just put it down and just forget that Christianity once and for all? That thought, my friends, is from the accuser of the brethren. That is the evil one who comes to us to drag us down, to tempt us to throw in the towel, to walk away permanently. And his voice must be resisted as we turn to the word of Christ. Let me read it for us. Hebrews, excuse me, Hosea chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, except what is good, and we may pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Well, there you have it, a a message of urgency and hope. Urgency because backsliding operates like a spiritual cancer. This is not a time for inaction or a wait-and-see approach. And hope because God has grace for his backsliding children. Let's look at this carefully, and as we do, let me highlight three truths that I trust will help to get us back in the race. Three truths that will help us to go from spiritual decline to spiritual recovery. The first one that I would like to draw your attention to is the diagnosis of spiritual decline. The diagnosis of spiritual decline. It's actually summarized there in the second half of verse 1. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. The NIV says your sins have been your downfall. You think of the natural man. He tries to explain everything in society in all kinds of ways. The reason we are in this kind of mess is because the political structure of of life is, is unfair, or the economic playing field isn't level, or it's because of the environment in which I am living or the way that I was raised. 
It's this diagnosis or that diagnosis, like shifting shadows. Are you looking for clarity this morning? The Bible gives the only real explanation of the state of affairs in life. That we live in a fallen world. That the world we know today is not the way that God made it, but it is the way that man has spoiled it. And that we live today with the results of sin. So that those fractures in our lives and in our families and in our relationships and in our personal being are there ultimately as a result of that which confronts us in the first verse of Hosea 14. Now again, the natural man says that's ridiculous. Sin is something that has been invented by theologians to to make people feel dependent upon God or to help them somehow control other individuals. Not at all, says Hosea. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. Now, what were the component parts? Because it's pretty easy to say, yes, I admit that I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. I know I've said things and done things. After all, we're all in the same stink. And we are. But we need to be careful that we don't just speak of sin and not sins, plural. Things, areas, problems that create decline and need recovery. And let me give you four things that the nation of Israel was facing that were the reason for their situation as confronted in this chapter. First is the problem of substandard separation. The problem of substandard separation. Hosea chapter 4 verse 17 says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Hosea chapter 7, verse 8, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples, the nations. Verse 9, strangers devour his strength. You see, what God called his people to is a very unique walk throughout all the pages of the Old Testament. He said, you shall be holy as I am holy. That is to say, there will be things about you that are absolutely peculiar. There will be things that you do and things that you don't do. That the surrounding nations around you will say to you, you're crazy to live that way. But you are my people. And I want you to live this way. Just because you are my people. Now there is no gap between That as God's expression to his ancient people Israel and his word to his church as we find it in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, Peter writing to scattered Christians. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So in other words, there is a road to walk. There is a pathway that we are called to walk, which is a pathway of blessing. And to err from that and to slip off to the side is to forfeit the blessing that God intends for us. So that we live in the world 
but not of the world, which is so cliche that we don't even understand it. But what it means is that the Christian is called to a radical lifestyle. There are things which are in, and there are things which are out. There are things which are holy and pure, and there are things which are not. And those things that are impure and unholy must be set aside. They must not be tampered with, lest you invite God's chastening rather than His blessing. What fellowship does light have with darkness? None at all. Can a, can a Christian have one standard during the week when he is with his coworkers or with his friends or with his classmates and join their conversation and laugh at their jokes and do what they do and go where they go and then come in on a Sunday and do something so very different and make it? No, he cannot. What will happen there will begin in his heart a decline. A decline that will draw him away from Christ. Don't do it. It can't be done. You'll never walk in true fellowship with Jesus while at the same time dabbling in the realm of darkness. Some of you have wondered about a person you've known that got into a terrible situation. Maybe he or she left their spouse or left their children. You say, I used to know him way back when. He was such a stalwart of the faith, a model of Christian service. I know how it could happen. Because when I look into my heart, I see the seeds of every sin I ever heard was committed by anyone else. And I know that in my heart there is a proneness to wonder. And decline among God's people stems first of all because of substandard separation. You see, it's not, it's not new to try and to, con- to combine it all. It's not new to try to have one foot in the promised land and one foot in Egypt. And it's sad to watch. Someone with one foot on one escalator and one foot on another escalator going a different direction. They think they're doing great. But they've got about three seconds before they are torn right up the middle. Secondly, the reason that Israel got themselves in this situation is what we might call the problem of half-baked holiness. Half-baked holiness. Notice the second half of Hosea chapter 7, verse 8. It says, Ephraim is a cake not turned. This summarize, summarizes Israel's tendency to make alliances with certain other nations. All in a futile attempt to protect themselves from another enemy nation. There were all kinds of deal-making going on. And the prophets warned them about this time and time again. Isaiah 31.1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. 
and yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. So they, they mixed themselves with the nations for protection. But the sad irony is that God would mix them with the nations in judgment. And for that, they have become half-baked. They are indigestible, cooked on one side but raw on the other. This is how God describes his people. In other words, Ephraim has decided that there are things that Ephraim likes about God and what he says. And Ephraim is going to do his very best in those areas. But there are also other areas where Ephraim doesn't like a thing about what God has said because it touches where they hurt. And in those areas, they are not about to be turned over and to be dealt with. So on one hand, they appear fine. But if you turn them over, you'll find that they are uncooked. For us, this is about undeveloped or unbalanced Christianity. You find people all the time talking about one or two or three different things. But if they were ever turned over, it would reveal many other areas that are uncooked. Areas that have never been touched by the Word or the Spirit. Areas that, that have been completely ignored or concealed. And there's a sense in, in which this is true of all of us. Because sanctification is a continual process. God is at work in our lives conforming us to the image of Jesus. And some of us are further down the road in some areas than in another. But there is this difference. That is the difference between a believer who is alert to his inadequacies, a believer who is aware of his uncooked side and is seeking God's help to correct, and a believer who is content with the inadequacies and does nothing at all about them. You may go to correct a person like that, and they have all kinds of excuses. God made me the way that I am. I don't have that fruit yet, but that's not the way the Spirit works. You don't get a little piece of fruit here and there. God produces whole-orbed Christians. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All that listing is one fruit, not nine. Like one orange with nine segments. You say, well, God hasn't given me that segment yet. You may have to work at it. But he has already given it to you. This kind of person grows out of touch. Thirdly, there was the problem of skin-deep devotion. Skin-deep devotion, Hosea 6.4 what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. 
Here we see it in the nation. And sadly, we see it in ourselves. Great at making resolutions, but fleeting in their effect. Superficial love. Superficial loyalty. Maybe even listening to God's word and facing its challenge, but seldom allowing for the time for God to deal with us deeply. Which of you husbands would be prepared to accept from your wives their love for 11 months of the year? But they keep the remaining month for whatever or whoever else they choose to share it with. Or which wife would be prepared to accept the same from her husband? But isn't that what we do so often with God? Perhaps there was a time in your life when you would, have, when you would not have believed these words. A time, said Charles Spurgeon, when in the flush of first love, prayer was your daily breath and the word of God your daily food. At that time, the word backsliding was foreign to your vocabulary. Sin was sin, grace was grace, God was God, and Christ was Christ. You would have waded through hell itself to get to Jesus Christ. A time when the Lord could say of you something like what he said to his people in Jeremiah 2, verse 2, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. But how is your spiritual life now? What is the state of your devotion? Too often our love for God is like the morning mist. And in our hearts, there is a measure of decline. Fourthly, there's the problem of self-deceiving deterioration. The problem of self-deceiving deterioration. Back once again to Hosea 7, verse 9. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. Strangers devour his strength. How did that happen? The foreigners were sapping Ephraim's strength through tribute money. That was extracted by the sovereign nation from the vassal nation. This was protection money. And he has gray hairs, meaning Ephraim's national lifespan was in its last days. But what is even more tragic... Israel did not recognize these evident realities because the gray hairs come unfelt and unknown. One day you're standing in front of the mirror and you think, hey, look at that. Where did that come from? A few people go gray overnight. Grayness comes almost imperceptibly. And few people backslide as a result of some cataclysmic occasion. Usually it comes gradually, just a slow and steady decline, just a slipping away by inches. Oftentimes there is some great event that happens which gives us the excuse 
for just storming off. But before we ever come to that, there has been in our lives this kind of decline all the way towards the end. As you read of it in these people, you may see a reflection of it in yourself. God's people let themselves drift. They get involved in wrong relationships. They lose sight of their husband's glory. And their hearts go away after cheap substitutes, false gods of their own choosing, who promised much but deliver nothing. And yet God's people at times keep up the front. Some people wear something called just for men or L'Oreal Paris to try to cover up their gray. And some of us may have come to to church this morning wearing our own spiritual root cover-up formula. But God says with piercing clarity, you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Well, this isn't all that great to start the first Sunday of a new year, is it? (laughs) It's kind of a hard word to preach. The truth is, we are unprepared to see ourselves the way the Word of God paints us. This is very different than being told that we are great people. And all we have to do is rediscover just how wonderful we are. We are about the least wonderful people that ever lived. But thankfully, Christ is the most wonderful Savior. And He is the great soul physician who is willing to heal us even of the judgments that He Himself sent to chasten us. So what then of the road to recovery? Should we find ourselves in measure like this today, find ourselves wandering and wayward? How precisely should we respond to the great physician of grace that we might be cured of our backsliding? Back to Hosea 14. And this is the second truth that will help us to get back in the race, and it's this, the way of spiritual recovery. The way of spiritual recovery. Through the prophet Hosea, God revealed a fourfold way. The first thing that it involves is a return to the Lord. A return to the Lord. It's right there in verse 1 and verse 2. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Verse 2 Take with you words and return to the Lord. In other words, get back to the place where you left the track. God doesn't call you from two miles down the road and say, forget that mess and get up, get up on here. He calls you back to where you left off. This is the prophetic call we find all throughout Hosea and the common call of all the prophets. Return. And this has with it a preposition of goal. Return to, or maybe even better, return until... Or return as far as. 
Most of the time, there's a preposition of direction. In other words, turn in that direction. But the emphasis in this case is turn or return all that way back to the Lord. Or a paraphrase could be come all the way home to the Lord. That is to say, don't come halfway and then turn around again. It's a beautiful thing, this word return. And the God who said to Ephraim and Israel, return, is the same God who is portrayed in Luke 15 as the father who watches out for his erring son. And he sees him when he is a long way off. Why? Because he watches for him. If you're here today and you've been walking the destructive road of decline, the road of waywardness, God, God's word to you is return. Return home to God. The second essential is repentance. Repentance from sins. There is no restoration without repentance. Verse 2, take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Say to him, forgive all iniquity. This is no time to be vague. This is the time to be honest with the Lord. And specific about things in our lives. We cannot lose the Holy Spirit living in us. Then we would cease to be Christians. But we can grieve the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives. And we grieve Him by sin. And when we come back, we don't just say, Lord, I've sinned. But in some cases, to get before him and name those very things in those very areas. Lord, I am far from you because of the pride in my heart. Lord, I have been down by path meadow because of the impurity of my thinking. Lord, I have been set aside from usefulness because of the things that I have been associated with and involved in. And I know I've been wrong. I bring these things before you. And I pray that you will forgive them. Not a vague and general confession, but a specific personal outpouring of a heart that's been touched by God. When you've broken somebody's heart, you want to be specific when you say you're sorry. That's what we do when we wander from God. The third thing on this road to recovery is a renunciation of all immoral associations and allegiances. Verse 3, as you turn back to God and from your sins, say to God, Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will, not, we, will, we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. This was Israel's track record. Relying in what they thought they could control. 
relying in their alliances with other nations, relying on their own military power and prowess, trusting in the work of their own hands, their idols, their false gods. But true repentance would require an absolute rejection of all that the nation had trusted in outside of God alone. At that point, we are at the watershed of a life where we come and say, Lord, I am prepared to completely reject all that has taken your place in my life. Idolatry ultimately is where we seek to dethrone the Lord and seek to enthrone ourselves. We say of these things, I have them, I made them, I have honored them. They will keep me safe. Assyria will do the job. God says, you fool. Perhaps tonight your soul will be required of you. All of our idols must go if we are to go forward with Christ. The fourth part of this recovery is a reaffirmation of faith. A reaffirmation of faith. Their faith in the God of their fathers. Notice the end of verse 3, the last statement they make. In you the orphan finds mercy. This reaffirmation of faith was not something added to their repentance, or just tagged on at the very end. It is the core of returning to the Lord. Because the backslider's fundamental problem is misplaced trust. A turning from the all-sufficient, unchangeable God to man or man's works to save us. Or to say it another way, all sin is trusting in idols rather than God. Our problem isn't simply an issue of sexual, uh, sexual lust or, or the love of money or laziness or thievery or anger or rebellion. Our problem is that we treat God as irrelevant because we do not really believe that He is the only Lord and Savior. And God's solution is for us to know Him in utter dependence. To understand that in our spiritual poverty, we have become orphans, prodigal sons, no longer worthy to be called children of the Father. But also to understand and to believe that He is full of mercy for spiritual orphans. And He delights to give everything to those who have nothing. And then finally, and we won't spend much time on this this last one, but I encourage you to go further and to meditate on this this week. The promise of spiritual healing. The promise of spiritual healing. Notice in verse 4, God begins to speak directly to His people, detailing His glorious promise to bring them to full recovery. He says, I will heal their backsliding. Not just the sad consequences of their backsliding, but the backsliding itself. God is determined to do it, and He's able to do it, and to do it well. 
God says, I am going to love them with no strings attached. I will be all that they need. I will be their refreshment. I will make them productive and fruitful. You see, it's a real possibility in our Christian experience to believe that because we have made such a mess of things, that God has permanently set us aside. That we will never again be able to be useful to God. Let this word be an encouragement to us today. Fruitfulness, which is born of our fellowship with Him. Fruitfulness, which comes not because we try so hard, but fruitfulness, which comes from the inflow of His life to parts that are dying, making them useful again. That is to say, where there has been dryness, God will give a fresh touch of life. Where there has been emptiness, He will give fullness. Where there has been stagnation, He will give fragrance to bless the lives of others. So ask yourself this morning, do my wife and kids, are they affected by the overflow of my love for Christ? Do I really make an impact in my work? Do people really see any radical difference in my life? Or does it just appear that I've latched onto some, some kind of spiritual entity that involves a routine? Am I in touch with Jesus in a vital way today? There is another scene in Hosea chapter 11 verse 8 where God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over? O Israel, he can't, and he won't, because God is not the God of unfinished business. And when he has pledged himself to us in Christ, he will bring to completion what he has started. So, he looks on our lives and he looks on this church and he either sees, sees us in a time of decline or he sees us in a time of incline. And to take us from decline to incline will only be by one route. And that will be the route we have laid out for us in Hosea 14. It will always involve a return, genuine repentance, a renunciation and a humble trust in God's unfailing love. Today, God, God looks from heaven, and He sees our hearts. And He laments over our waywardness. And He stands ready to welcome us into His fruitfulness. Maybe you're here today as one who cannot deny having experienced God's saving grace, but finding yourself leaning less on His grace and more towards sin. It may be that your spiritual life has taken a fall. Like a runner who has stumbled, you can hardly see the finish line. 
Your sin may have broken your heart, dishonored your Lord, or damaged your ability to walk with God. You may have every reason to feel discouraged, but Christ can heal your soul and bring you to the victor's crown. Hear his gracious plea again in verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. God offers his wisdom to backsliders. Will you receive it? Arise, go to your father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned, and return. Or maybe you're here today, but you are a total stranger to the life of grace. You've not learned what it means to be saved. If God does not prevent it, you will appear one day before his judgment throne without an intercessor, without an advocate, between you and an angry and holy God, Christless and hopeless forever. Your need is urgent. Do not despise God's word. Do not delay. Fly quickly to God's throne. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He will forgive you. He'll give you peace and rest for your soul and eternal life. Let's stand for prayer. Gracious Father, this is so important for us to consider today. What is our trajectory in life? Is it the path of restoration and blessing? Or is it the pit of destruction? Do we truly know you? Or are we just pretending? Are we pressing onward and upward? Or are we gradually drifting away? Lord, in in love, you have used the events of this past year, maybe even this past week, to humble us, to show us the unfaithfulness and the ignorance and the unbelief in our hearts. For that, we are thankful. Today, may we bring to you in true confession the very things that you have brought to our attention. Purify our lives. Restore our souls and grant us once again the joy of your salvation. May you fill us with your fullness. May you cause us to grow. May you change us by your power and presence. And may your covenant love be a magnet this day and every day to draw and to hold, for, hold firm our wayward hearts. In the name of Christ and for his glory, amen.